0: To the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Well, good morning. I'm excited for this morning. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And for those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. We just want to say welcome, and uh, I just am thankful that you chose to spend some time with us this morning. We just believe everybody matters to God, and your story matters, and why you're here, God has something special for you today. And our heart is in our prayer this morning, even as we gathered up for prayer, is that that God would draw everyone here that needs to be here, and that who, uh, who uh, He has something specially planned for. And so we hope that you walk away here encouraged, built up, strengthened, and that you have an encounter with the presence of God today that is absolutely life-changing. Excuse me. So um, we are in week two of a series we started last week uh, called Becoming. And, man, I don't know about you, but I thought last week was pretty special, especially as we start digging into the reality that, that God is working in our everyday lives to help us become more and more like Jesus Christ and that His will for us And his desire is that we would become one with him. Not just that we would agree that what he says is true or that that we'd be on the same page, but that we'd become one in the intimate sense, like a husband and wife are one, that that they become inseparable, that our identity would be in him and that, that we would be in him like he is in the Father. As, God, as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, that we would be in Christ, that, that when people look at our lives, they wouldn't know where we begin and where God ends. That's God's desire for us, and that he sent the Holy Spirit to be our connection to God, to be our connection to Christ, and it's through encounters in the Spirit, the revelation that he gives in small and big ways in our everyday lives that inch us closer into who uh, Jesus wants us to be. And the theologians call this sanctification as we go from being who we were before we knew Christ and we inch every day closer to becoming like Christ until one day we see Christ face to face. And so we were passionate about the presence of the Lord. We are passionate about his presence. And I know some of you had encounters last week, and I believe that many more will have continued encounters today because I believe God wants to bring us into another level of revelation. He wants to unlock some hearts today and bring you into freedom that may be keeping you at a distance from his presence or at a distance from his will for your life. And, and I believe that God, he desires to unlock some hearts of the burdens that maybe you've been carrying for a very long time. And one of the greatest tools the enemy has to keep you from experiencing the presence of God or encountering the presence of God that keeps you at a distance from what God has designed to help you in your spiritual life, your everyday life, to become more like Christ, to to have greater faith, to see greater things. The thing that the enemy uses against you to keep you from that is a hard heart. It's a hard heart. Which is why, in the Old Testament, one of the prophecies of the work of the Spirit in this day and age was that the Spirit of God would take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. So as we get into the the message today, that's kind of our prayer, as we ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that God also takes the hearts of stone, or the, the stony places in our hearts that maybe we have neglected, and that He would give us hearts of flesh, that we wouldn't just agree with what the Word of God says, but we would be earnestly desiring to obey what God says, to experience all that He has for us. And I believe that for some of you here today, you're, you're going to have an experience with the Lord, and, and I'm excited for that. So let's, let's pray, and if you're willing, I ask you to pray with me. Lord God, I just thank you for your presence this morning. I thank you for what you've already begun and what you're continuing to do. God, I thank you that we're not here by accident or by chance. You have a purpose and reason for everyone here. That your plan is for good and not disaster, to give us future and a hope, to build us up, strengthen us, encourage us, to help us get out of our mess and begin walking into your promises and walking to the fulfillment of the purpose you have for our lives. So today, God, as we prepare our hearts to even uh, receive the word, we ask you to give us eyes to hear. Our eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe. And church, if you're willing, pray this with me. Lord God, take this heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Soften my heart that I may fully surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. So this past year at the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs squeaked out a win. It was a tight game. It was a tough game. And I said before, even the game, that I was really kind of hoping for the Eagles to, to pull it off. They were like the underdog. And Patrick Mahomes, he's a good quarterback, but it, you know, I feel like he's, there's a little too much hype you know, around Patrick Mahomes. But um, I did gain some respect for him after the game was over. So he was being interviewed by the, the, the reporter for the, the sports reporter, and the reporter kept trying to highlight his performance. Be like, how did you do it? What was your strategy? Well, what was your game plan? Like, 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 did you know that you were going to have such an impact in the game? And every time the reporter would ask him these questions, he would turn it and say, it wasn't a one-man show. It was all about the team. That it was a team effort. We all did what we were supposed to do. And Travis Kelsey was there with them in the interview, and it was almost like she was ignoring his outstanding performance that he had during the game to focus on Patrick Mahomes. But he kept redirecting that it's not about me. It's about the team. It's about the coaching staff. Everyone working together for that victory to be possible. Without everyone working together, they wouldn't have even had a chance The coaches, the trainers, the offense, and the defense, they had to have one singular vision, one singular game plan. They had to be operating in unity, chasing the same thing, running the same plays, reaching for the same goals to the absolute best of their ability. And they did it, and it paid off because they won. They won the Super Bowl. If any singular player in that game had tried to shine their own light, create their own highlight reel, chase their own goals apart from the team's strategy, it wouldn't have been possible to be successful. Why? Because they had an enemy ready to capitalize on every weakness they displayed. And in that game, you saw that. If one wasn't fumbling, the other person was, was, was taking advantage, right? It would have created massive dysfunction, and they wouldn't have had a chance Because they had an enemy trying to capitalize on every flaw and every weakness to take them down. And beloved, the same is true for the church of Jesus Christ. If we're not operating in unity with the same vision, the same strategy, the same plan, each person running the same play, fulfilling their role to the best of their ability... The enemy is going to be right there to capitalize on every weakness and flaw that we have. In John 17, we looked at this passage last week, and it's important. It's like the theme for this series. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus, as he prays, that he's asking the Father to help his people be one in him, to be united in him. He also says something important. He's not just praying that we're one with him. He says that they may be one As we are one. So as I am in you, Dad, and as as you are in me, my prayer is that they individually would be in us, but also that they would be one together. That they would be one, that they would be singular, and not just agreeing, not just in, in harmony, but they would literally be one as we are one, which means we don't know their identity from where one begins and the other ends. That they'd be so locked in step, so in sync, so together, that, that they act and function as one whole. They'd be not just one in mind and one in heart, but also one in proximity. That they would do life together. They would form an inseparable family, housing the Holy Spirit as they act as beacons of light and hope to the world. This is his prayer in his final moments. But then he says something really interesting about us being one, and we often kind of miss this or or, or don't really meditate on what he's saying, but he says that they would be one, what? So the world will know you sent me. So the world will know. Do you know we live in a skeptical world that's trying its hardest to disprove the existence of God that faith is meaningless, and that everyone should just do what's right in their own eyes. This is the type of world we live in. The world is clamoring for evidence for God, but since they aren't really finding any, they reject God. And God isn't afraid of evidence. A lot of times we kind of think that way. Well, it's just about faith. No, God isn't afraid of evidence. The Bible says the heavens declare his handiwork. There's evidence everywhere for God. There's evidence in the sciences. There's evidence in history. There's evidence in philosophy. There's evidence everywhere that's pointing to God. God is not afraid of evidence. But here Jesus is saying there is an evidence the world needs that they're missing. There's an evidence that they're, they're hungry for and, and that if they had it, they would know Jesus is who he said he is. And they would be overcome with faith in the Messiah because they would know Jesus has come from God and is the light and hope of all the world. There's an evidence that God has prepared for his people. There's a personal evidence. There's a personal experience they can have with a personal God. And it's the evidence of personal experience. When they experience the reality of this personal God, they'll be convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. But that evidence is conditional evidence. That evidence or that experience is conditional. It's based not just on a singular person's experience, but it's based on a unified church. The world needs to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And the evidence the world needs to believe is not just a believer who's one with the Lord, flowing in his presence, power, truth, and love, but it's a united church, a body of believers who are united together in his presence, power, truth, and love. That's what the world needs. So when we are walking in the spirit, not just singularly, but together as a unified whole, as a church united in heart and mind, walking in his presence, living out of the reality of his presence, we will be the evidence that will convince the world Jesus is who he said he is. But right now, the church at large is highly divided. And while the church is splintered off into thousands of divisive pieces, the world will maintain its excuses for unbelief. Right now, beloved, there are 35,000 plus Christian denominations in the world. 35,000 different ways you can follow and practice the Christian faith. Some I may question whether they are really Christian or not, more like Christian in name only. But there are 35,000 different ways. That doesn't speak of a unified church. It's a divisive church, which is why I believe that God is pouring out revival in these days. He's calling us back to something pure, something holy. So what's the answer for a divided church? The answer for a divided church is for those who are spiritually asleep to arise, to awaken, for worshipers to arise in spirit and truth, preachers to preach, teachers to teach, prophets to prophesy, healers to heal, the servants of God to serve, to come alive in real revival, awakening to the great pursuit, chasing the spirit of God from one degree of glory to the next. That we would awaken in our spirit that there is something greater to live for, something beyond our everyday life, our existence, that's an incredible purpose, a great journey, a great, a great adventure with God, that we wake up to that and we pursue it with our whole heart every day. We can't keep doing what we're doing in the modern American religious world. We can't keep going like we're going building religious institutions at the sake of a living relationship with Almighty God. And one person can't steer the ship. Like we're we're told this all the time, one person can make a difference. Yeah, you can make a difference, but you can't steer the ship. The ship of the church runs on the feet of everyone that's a part of the church. One person can't steer it. It takes all of us to head in the same direction. We're all part of this thing Jesus calls the church of Jesus Christ. And if the church is going to turn, it's going to require all of the people who are called by his name to humble themselves and pray, to turn from their sinful ways and seek his face, And then he'll hear from heaven, and then the times of refreshing will come. It takes all of us to set the stage for revival, all of us to seek, all of us to be serious, all of us to pursue. And this is exactly what we see in the early church. Just after the resurrection, 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost, The believers are all in one place. About 120 are gathered together in prayer because Jesus said, look, when I go, wait in Jerusalem because there's a blessing coming. And when you receive it, then you'll be my witnesses. When the Spirit of God comes, you'll be anointed with power, and you'll receive this power to be my witnesses, and then you'll tell about me all over the world. So wait in Jerusalem, and when that's poured out, then, then, then you'll go and you'll fulfill everything I've, I called for you to do. And that day comes, and the Spirit's poured out, and it's this miraculous moment where in an instant, multitudes of every nation, tribe, and tongue, of the 70 nations at the time, hear the gospel, thousands of people get saved, and instantly the gospel begins to expand all over the world in a single swoop. It's an amazing miracle of God. And then right after this moment... In Acts, in Acts chapter 2, it begins to describe the new way of living that these people began to live because of what Christ had done, and because of now they're united into something that they hadn't belonged to before. They're now part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to read the description of, of what began to take place among the believers. Beginning in verse 42, it says, all the believers devoted themselves. What did that say? Did it say some of them? Did it say just the oldest members, or just the youth, or just the ones that have been saved the longest? No. It says all of them. They all did this. They all devoted themselves they were united they had a singular vision a singular heart a singular pursuit wrapped up together in a mutual love for god and for one another they devoted themselves they didn't rely on mom and dad's faith they didn't rely on my neighbor's faith they didn't rely on on my friend's faith who's been asking me to come they, they devoted themselves individually, personally to this thing. And now we're going to see what was come of this devotion. He says, to the, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. Somebody say a sense of awe. We're going to come to that in a minute. But something comes over them because of this devotion. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved something radically transformed the lives of these believers and not only did 3,000 come to Christ in a single day but every day after that more and more and more people came and each one that came into this group devoted themselves to these things Now, it's important to note they didn't do these things to become united. They didn't do these things to become unified. They did these things because they were already unified. They were already united. When they were one, they were effective when they were one, powerful things and powerful moves of God happened. That's why it says a deep sense of awe came upon all of them. Another way to phrase that in the Old Testament, it says the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, this great awe. You, you know when you witness something like tragic or, or scary or, or intense, you have that sense of awe. It's like, what just happened? You're like, did that? That's just happened, right? Like, you're just this, you're awestruck. And so here, as they're devoting themselves, God is moving in incredible ways, in powerful ways. They're seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. They have such an encounter and expression of his presence among them that they're awestruck every time they come together. The manifestations of the spirit of the living God. And when they were one, they were united in heart and mind. When they were one, the Lord added to their number. People were being saved in droves. Why? Because as a united church, the world has the evidence it needs to know that God is God and Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. What were they doing when they were one? Well, they were studying together, praying together, met for fellowship. In the Lord's Supper, they gave generously. They served together, worshiped together, evangelized together. They ministered to the needs of their city together. They prioritized the King of Kings and his kingdom together. And God moved powerfully among them and gave him favor in their community. I don't know about you. I want to be a part of that kind of church. That's what I want. Now, here's the reality of the mystery of oneness. We are already one in the Spirit of God. But we are becoming one as we are being transformed more and more like Jesus Christ. The more we become like Christ, the less individual and the less selfish we are. So as we grow closer to Christ, we naturally grow closer to one another. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, he says, Paul says to the church of Corinth, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles. We, we have these identities that the world has given us apart from God. Like we grow up, some of us are rich, some of us are poor, some of us are slaves, some of us are free, some of us are white, some of us are black, some of us are American, some of us are Asian, some of us are athletic, some of us are not athletic. There are all these different labels that we have coming to the table. But once you encounter the spirit of the living God, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, you become baptized into a new identity, and that identity is one with Christ the Lord. You take on his name. You shed off every prior label and you take on the name of Christ. There are no blank Christians. There are no black Christians, white Christians, gay Christians, straight Christians. There's only Christian. Because Christ's name is the only name that we celebrate. We're one. We're one with Christ and we become one with each other. We are one in spirit. But we don't automatically become one in heart and mind. So just like a husband and wife are one in spirit, when the Spirit of God weaves their spirits together, when they become intimate together, they're not automatically seeing eye to eye on every issue. Anybody want to testify? (laughs) Have we got any honest people in the house today? Right? You don't always see eye to eye. So even if you had a great dating relationship, it's not always great after you're married. There's that for better or worse that we talked about last week. So you're in process of building a life together, of becoming one. Even though you're one in spirit, you're working on becoming one in heart and one in mind. And the same is true for the the church of Jesus Christ. We're one in spirit with God the Father. The spirit of the living God lives in us. We should celebrate that every day. Because greater is he in us than he that is in the world. But we are working on becoming one in mind and one in heart with God and each other. So part of the way we guard this oneness that the Spirit of God is birthing within us and and growing us into the unity that the body of Christ, the church, is supposed to have as we live and work together, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, this is how we guard this unity and continue to foster its growth as we're becoming one. He says, always be humble and gentle. We can stop there. I have failed that. Let's just go home. Always. Aren't there some verses in the Bible you just want to cut out and throw away? Like Thomas Jefferson actually did that. He created the Jefferson Bible. He cut out all the parts he didn't agree with and kept what he agreed with, and it's in the Library of Congress today. But he says, always be humble and gentle. Man, that's a tall order. Thanks be to God we're not alone in this journey. Thanks be to God we don't have to Rely on our own strength for these things. But we have one who's with us, a comforter, a teacher, a friend, and a guide. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. This isn't just something that comes natural. This isn't just something that just happens willy-nilly and just because. This is something that requires effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires humility and gentleness and love to bind yourselves together in peace. As Paul knows, and the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write this knows, we're all flawed human beings who struggle with pride and self-centeredness. If we didn't, he wouldn't have to write, always be humble and gentle. you think about that? If we weren't going to struggle with it, he wouldn't have put it in there. But it's there. Here's the encouragement. Make allowance for each other's faults. Beloved, there are no perfect people in the body of Christ. We often kid with my wife... As we joke around about the church, and we just say, Our church is just a group of misfits. We're just a group of misfits. We're all messed up, but we love Jesus. And that's what keeps us together. There are no perfect people in the church. If you're trying to find a church with no hypocrites, you're going to look for a long time. Because we all got stuff. We're all messed up. We all have challenges, we all have struggles. If you let everything people do frustrate you all the time or hurt you all the time, there's going to be a giant wall in the way of your ability to be one and your ability to love. He says, make allowance for each other's faults because of what? Because of your love. If you're not operating in grace, giving grace to broken people, knowing you're a broken person yourself, it's going to be hard for you to be one with the church, to be committed to the church, to be bound to the church, to grow in oneness, and also to love your neighbor. Make allowance. Make every effort to keep yourselves united. This is proactive, which means if you start seeing division in your own heart, in your own life, or in the church, some type of unhealthy dynamic work eroding away at the unity that God intends for us, that we're not to just sit back and watch it happen. We're to do something about it. And I'm not encouraging what happened to me and some ministry friends of mine uh, Several, several years ago, we were part of a church, and the pastor that was the leading the church was called to another ministry, and there were, was some disagreement in the leadership about how the church should go on and what vision and direction they should have, and so the deacon boards convened, a, a, had a meeting, a secret meeting. They decided to change the locks on the door and then call all the staff in one at a time and let them go from their positions. And if you had played the song Another One Bites the Dust in the background, it would have been really fitting. Because one by one, they're like, man, I just got fired. Man, I just got fired. Man, I just got fired. And the reason why they did that, they said, is because they wanted to work towards unity. What they were really doing is getting rid of people that didn't think like them. That's not unity. That's uniformity. It's not the same thing. There will be differences. There will be disagreements. Unity doesn't mean everyone is the same. Unity means we're all working towards the same thing. We're all headed in the same direction. So, beloved, God isn't asking for uniformity, but he is asking for people to love each other sacrificially for the sake of unity and do what's necessary to remain unified. Because at the end of the day, beloved, we are one. Verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit Just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who's over all, in all, and living through all. However, he's given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. As we are the body of Christ, each of us occupy a different space in the body. And so Jesus has given us all unique and different gifts. God intends there to be differences for our good. We can't all be the same. Paul gives an illustration in 1 Corinthians ten about a body. He says, "What would it look like if a body, if everything was just the eye? If the body was just one big eye?" And I often imagine a big giant eyeball rolling down the street. That's kind of ridiculous. But he says, "If everyone was an eye, how would you smell?" If everyone is the nose, how would you see? If everyone was an ear, how, you know, what, how would you touch things? How, how would you do things? So there is a necessity that there are differences. It's a necessity that, that we have differences among us, and we've each been uniquely gifted and equipped by the Spirit of God to help build up and strengthen the church to become everything it's meant to be. So there are going to be differences, the, the church isn't just a body, but we're also a family that's been adopted into a new family, right? We're called the sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into his family. How amazing is that? That when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you became part of a new family, a family that's never going to abandon you, that's never going to reject you, that's never going to kick you out because you're covered under the blood of Jesus, You're his forevermore. That's so amazing. So you're part of a new family, and God guards his family, and God wants his family to guard each other, to love one another, and to have each other's back, which means sometimes you're going to have to sacrifice yourself to love someone else to help them back into health and to reach their full potential. There is, in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon, as he's writing the book of Proverbs, he reveals seven things that God hates. Did you know there's some things that God hates? We're saying, oh, Pastor Joy, I thought God is a God of love. Yes, he is. He's loving. But what he hates is what hurts his kids. If you're a parent, you know this fact. You know, when something threatens your kids, you kind of lose civility a little bit. There are often times I've, I've, I've said, and I know many other dads the same way, you hurt my kids, I'm losing my salvation, and I'm going to jail. It's just a thing, right? There's just something in you when something comes in the way of the well-being of your kids. And there are some things that God hates because of the way it affects his kids. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning of verse 16, it says, There are six things the Lord hates, no, seven things he detests. These make him sick. He detests it. It grieves him, right? He says, number 17, he says, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness that pours out lies, and a person who sows what? Sows discord in a family. A person that sows discord in a family. That, that word discord means to cause strife or contention. So in other words, a person that creates disunity in a family or division in a family, God can't stand it. God actually hates it, which is why the Spirit of God over and over again in the New Testament says, guard your unity. Be one. Make every effort to be one Make every effort, work as hard as you can in becoming and remaining one together. And this is important because when we allow disunity, when discord uh, comes in, whether we participate in it actively or we just try to sweep things under the rug and ignore it, it creates a wall, just, not just between us and our relationship with God, but I believe it so grieves the Spirit of God because when it's in the church, it gets in the way of what God wants to do, accomplish, and reveal in the church of Jesus Christ. If the Spirit of God is taking us from one degree of glory to the next to become more like Christ, he wants to pour out his presence, he wants to give you greater revelation, then when there is discord in the family of of Christ, there's going to be a wall preventing him to do everything that he wants to do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Again, if he wrote it, that means it's possible. You can actually slow or stifle the work of the Spirit of God in the church of Jesus Christ. We can limit what he's able to do simply because of the attitudes and the things we allow. That word stifle means don't quench his fire, don't limit his ability to manifest his glory, to work in you and also work through you. Whatever hinders the work and ability of the Spirit of God to move among us for us to see and experience His glory, to grow our relationship with God, don't do that. And I believe if we want to see and experience more of God, to see Him use us in more powerful and profound ways in this community, we have to guard against what is stifling His work among us and through us. And there are really two ways That we can sow discord in the family of faith. And this can apply to your own family as well, in your own context, because our individual relationship with God affects our corporate relationship with God. So there's two ways you can sow discord in the church. First way is actively. Solomon named several things here, like gossip and slander, lying, deception, faction building, running to make mischief, anything that... Is it an active participation that comes against the unity and oneness of the church? This is sowing discord in the family of faith. But the second is just as vital passively, you can sow discord by holding grudges, refusing to forgive, stewing on hurts, bringing up the past, giving a cold shoulder, or shunning someone, or forming cliques. You've heard that phrase, us four and no more. That doesn't mean you're telling people they can't participate, but you're definitely not welcoming them in to participate. And so you're creating cliques or factions within the body. When everyone's supposed to be welcome and come as you are, you're saying, yeah, you can come, but you just can't hang with me. It's discord. Where you make sure that you're not maybe saying anything mean, but you make sure by your body language how much you dislike the person. And these are all works of the flesh. And these things the Spirit of God and God hates. And he's urging us not to allow it in the body of Christ. Now, there are bound to be issues and problems, right? We're broken people. We're imperfect. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. You might act out of character. You might do something unintentionally. You might be having a bad day and and step out of character. Somebody's going to let you down, and you're going to let somebody else down, even hurt and betray one another. How you handle it determines whether or not you're working toward unity or discord. So let me give you three ways here quickly that you can ensure you are working to guard the unity of faith Guard the unity that we have in the church to ensure your life in this place is a place where the fire of God is stoked and not stifled. Number one, if you're taking notes, make reconciliation a priority and settle it quickly. Make reconciliation a priority and do it quickly. Quickly. Matthew chapter 5, 23 through 25, Jesus says, If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And when you're on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison if you're out of sorts with somebody in the body of Christ or they're out of sorts with you, God would rather you save your gift, save your tithe, not sing the songs, not come forward for prayer, not, not do your ministry, not do your spiritual obligation. He'd rather you save it until you reconcile it. I'm guilty of this. How many times out of obligation do we think, well, I can't just not do that. I have expectations on me. Well, that reveals who we fear more, the fear of man or the fear of God. So Jesus is saying, don't, if you've got a problem with somebody or they have a problem with you, don't avoid it. Go fix it. Reconcile. Make reconciliation a priority and do it quickly. Don't don't give time for things to get worse. And, beloved, we're not fooling God. The Old Testament says that God pours out the fire on the sacrifice. And by not reconciling, we're limiting the amount of fire God's able to pour out on our sacrifices. Because we're not giving a sacrifice with a pure heart. So Jesus says, take care of your heart. Take care of your relationships before you come and ask for a blessing. In verse 25, again, he says, settle it quickly. And I believe, as Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is one of the things he commands. We're still in the first one. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is a command. Don't pretend like you love me if you're not willing to obey me, in other words. So if you have a problem with somebody, don't come and do your duty until you settle your problem. And often we neglect these areas. Number two, don't hold grudges. Don't let these things linger. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church about this guy who was caught up in sexual immorality. He was doing something egregious. He says even the pagans don't do this kind of stuff. And the church wasn't addressing it. They were kind of trying to sweep it under the rug. And he's like, look, you're not honoring God by looking over this issue. You need to kick this guy out until he repents. And they follow his instructions, and they do the very thing that, that he intends to do. But something must have happened in the guy's heart because in Second Corinthians, Paul changes his approach. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, he says, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble and hurt of all of you or hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Like, he wounded you. He wounded you. He hurt you guys more than he hurt me. Verse 6, he says, most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive. Somebody say, time to forgive. It's time to forgive, and what? Comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. Do you realize that when someone hurts you, and, and they're repentant, and they apologize. They ask for your forgiveness. But you don't give them forgiveness. You don't offer them reconciliation. You begin to wound them just as they've wounded you. You become the hurter rather than the one who's hurt. Your unforgiveness becomes a wound to them. In Luke chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says, If a person wrongs you seven times a day... And each time, again, ask forgiveness, you must forgive. So out goes the lie until the person stops hurting me, I don't have to forgive them. No, he says, you need to forgive them every time they ask. Every time. And it's not for that person. Forgiveness is not for the person that's hurting you, forgiveness is for you. Jesus doesn't tell you to withhold forgiveness until they stop, he says, be quick to forgive. Forgive whenever they ask. Your posture of humility, this posture of grace and attitude of forgiveness is what he expects of the people of God. And we continue in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. He says, I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. So don't just forgive him, don't just reconcile him, comfort them, reaffirm your love. He says, as I wrote to you to test you to see if you'd fully comply with my instructions, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. Somebody say your benefit. So he wounded you. You have to forgive. Settle it. Do it quickly. This is for your benefit. How many of you know that forgiveness is actually for your benefit? It's not for the person. It doesn't justify what they've done. It doesn't make anything they did right. It's not for them. It's for you, and it's for your heart. And here's what he says. Here's the benefit. He says in verse 11, this is a clue into what he's getting at. He says, so Satan will not outsmart us, for we're familiar with his evil schemes. Satan is at work in every wound and every hurt of your heart. There is a spiritual covering that you have as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, as being one with Christ and one with the church. Satan is trying to get in any way he can, and our wounds, in our pains, in our hurts are the doorway. Unforgiveness, bitterness, and grudges are a wide-open barn door to the enemy. In Ephesians 4.27, it says, Anger gives a foothold to the devil. When you don't forgive, it allows anger to grow, and if you think about rock climbing and mountain climbing, if you were to fall off the edge of a cliff, what are you looking for with your feet? You're looking for a foothold, a place to to grab on, to hold on. This term foothold also represents the ground an opposing army gains when he gains leverage in a battle. He's getting leverage by inching in and Increasing his place of authority in your life. So when you choose not to forgive, when you're stewing, when you're holding grudges, you're not letting things go and resolving things quickly, you're giving the devil a place to operate in your life. And that's not for your benefit, it's for your destruction. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. If the enemy has a root in your life, It's not just affecting you. It's affecting everyone around you. And if you're allowing a root to stew in the church, guess what? It affects the entire church. Because when we're a body, if one part of us is sick, we're all sick. Think about it. Anytime you get ill, anytime you have an injury, it affects the entire body. It takes every way that, it, that you're able to function and, and live and flourish and thrive. And Satan spews out poison, these poisonous roots, to grow up and corrupt not just you, but everyone you touch. In an unforgiving heart, grudges in the heart affect the unity and oneness God desires for us to experience. Number three, when there are issues, when you have offenses, first deal with the offender alone. First, deal with the offender alone. So you think of it this way. When you have an offense, when someone hurts your feelings or there's an issue, especially in the church, this applies anywhere, but especially in the church, if someone hurts you, you need to put it in a category. If you think of your life in categories and issues in your life, when you're offended, you need to put it in a category, and the category's title is Nunya. Nunya Business. None of your business. It's not anyone else's business. It's between you, God, and the person that hurt you. It's not okay to call, text, FaceTime, meet secretly to discuss your offense. I don't care how much you love and trust this person and think they'll keep confidence. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Because you can't discuss your offense without corrupting the mind and thoughts of the person you're talking to. It's called gossip and slander, and it's one of the things God hates because it hurts the body. So you're not to discuss your issues with other people until you have first approached and discussed it with the one that hurt you. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately. Somebody say Privately. Privately, and point out the offense. If the person listens and confesses it, which means considers your point of view, hears you out, listens to your grievance, says you've won the person back. Why? Because it's all about reconciliation, it's about restoring, not holding on to pain and letting things fester. It's about restoring and restu- restoring relationship. Verse 16, he says, But if you're unsuccessful, so you first went to them, but you were unsuccessful. You couldn't work it out. He says, then take two or more others with you and go back again. Bring mediators, godly mediators, with you. But again, don't discuss the issue with them. It's not, you're not building a team to go ambush the person that hurt you. Again, the goal is reconciliation. Reconciliation. So we take two or more. Why? Because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. A truth is established. So they're to witness. They're to hear the discussion. They're to weigh the sides. And then he continues. He says, so that everything you say can be confirmed by the witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Bring it to your church leaders. Why? Because this is going to corrupt and mess up the unity in the church. So bring it and let them decide the matter. If he or she won't accept the church's decision, then you got to treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. He's saying if someone is refusing to repent, they're not coming into unity, they're not making reconciliation, you can't let that continue. Somebody's got to go, and it's the unrepentant person. Because what matters most in the gathering is the unity of God, because that's how the Spirit is poured out. That's how God works and moves and is able to encounter people to lead them to faith in Christ Jesus. So if someone is getting in the way of that, you got to let them go. In 1 Corinthians 5, as Paul was talking about this guy that they had to separate with to, so that he would go into a time of repentance, he says, you throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Again, we're talking about spiritual covering. When a person is released from the body of Christ because of disunity, they're given, they're the spiritual coverings removed. And the enemy is given free for all in their life, not to destroy them, but to bring them to repentance so that they'll be saved on the Lord's day, so they come back to the family of faith. So we remove the one causing division to protect the unity, but we prepare ourselves to reconcile when repentance comes. Again, the goal is not destruction, it's repentance. The Sad but true fact, and it's been an experienced in my own life, we often, before we wake up to the reality of what we're doing, we have to be taken to our lowest moment where we run out of excuses before we're willing to admit what we've done. I'm so thankful we have a God who's gracious, patient, and kind, and he's constantly chasing our hearts and constantly rooting for us. So when the person comes to that realization and they, man, I messed up, I I, I was wrong, man, I'm sorry, then we're ready to forgive and restore. Colossians 3.13, again, Paul says to the church of Colossae, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone. Somebody say forgive anyone. Forgive anyone who offends you. Why? Because the Lord forgave you. The Lord forgave you. When Jesus offered his blood before the throne of God for the forgiveness of sins, the Bible says in Hebrews that he stepped out to the end of the ages. He stepped outside of time to the end of time to offer his blood as a sacrifice, which means everything, every sin that will ever be committed already is past tense to God. That's why you're a new creation. All things old are past. All things have become new. Your slate's clean before God when you place your faith and trust in Christ, because His blood's already covered everything. The stuff you haven't even done yet. The things that, that you do that that you're gonna feel guilty about, like going ten over the speed limit and getting pulled over, and you're like, oh man, you know, He covered that already. It's covered. He's forgiven you of everything you've ever done already. So we need to forgive others the way he's forgiven us. Forgive anyone. The way to guard the unity in the church, to fan the flame of the spirit as we pursue Jesus in our daily lives and together when we meet together is we need to make reconciliation a priority. Don't hold grudges and deal with our issues privately so they don't infect and corrupt other people. And this is how we will love each other into health how we love the church and guard its unity. As we bring our service to a close, here's where the hard part comes. This is why we ask God at the beginning to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. As the music begins to play, I just want to meditate on what Jesus said for a moment. He said, if someone has an issue with you, or vice versa, you have an issue with someone else, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled. We are a church of imperfect people, but I believe we're also a church driven by love and hungry for the presence of God. And I don't want to let anything fester in my life that would get in the way of God encountering people when we gather together. So if we have broken people in this room, then there are probably some grievances some hurts, some wounds that need to be reconciled. Maybe some grudges. But I take what the Lord said. He's like, before you come to my altar, go and be reconciled and then come ask for blessing. If we love the Lord, we will obey him. And in my time of prayer, preparing for this message, I just believe the Spirit of God is saying to us today, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled and watch the fire of God fall. Watch the blessing come. Go and be reconciled. Forgive and be forgiven. Repent and receive mercy. And you're not doing it alone because the one in you is with you. And he's going before you, and he's got your back. And Psalm 139 says his hand of favor is on your head. When God's people obey the Lord, it's a delight to the Lord. When we resist the Lord, the Bible says he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we resist the Lord, we get resisted. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord at the right time, he lifts us up in honor. We delight the Lord. Psalm 57, 17 says, The sacrifice God desires, beloved, is a broken spirit. He will not reject a broken and repentant heart. So the challenge today is to give God what he desires. Some of you, you've been holding on to stuff. You've got stuff you're holding on to someone in this church. Maybe you've got something you've been holding on about somebody in your life. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a friendship that's dissolved because of a grievance. Maybe somebody hurt you or wounded you, and you've not been able to forgive, and you've just left that door wide open for the enemy, and you know that he has a root in your life because you feel the effects of it. The altar call today, the response today, is to humble yourself before God and reconcile. If the person's here, get up, take them off to the side, and be reconciled. If they're not here, get before the Lord and repent. Repent of unforgiveness or repent of what you've done. And then get up from that moment and go be reconciled and forgive. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But often following Christ is. So I said, take up your cross and follow me. But as we obey the Lord, walls begin to fall. Hard hearts become hearts of flesh. And the spirit can begin filling the empty vessel. As you let go of what has been filling your life, the spirit of God can begin filling it up. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, If if you're not moving, if you're not... If you're not going to respond, then I would just say stay in an attitude of prayer and seek the Lord or maybe some things in your life that you need to surrender. But if you've got things right now that you know you're holding on to, in the count of three, I encourage you, get up from where you are and go be reconciled. And then come and lay yourself down at the altar and surrender afresh to the Lord. And as Tony leads us, We're going to ask the Spirit of God to fall in this place. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are already one. We are already one. But God, you're dealing with us every day to become more one. More one with you and more one with one another. And often, God, because of things that are in our lives, stuff that we just are scared to deal with, or things that we're resistant to deal with. We let things get in the way of what you want to accomplish and what you want to do. But God, we just reaffirm our belief that what you want for us is for good. It's for our benefit. It's to get the enemy out of our lives and fill us with the spirit of the living God. So God, I'm asking for that divine humility to fall in this place. I'm asking for your presence to fall. And you give us the faith and the courage to obey. And God, I pray you bless every person that responds. I pray you bless every hard heart that is softened right now in Jesus' name. I pray, God, that you would so move and work, God, that you would touch every heart, every life, every person. And that, Lord, we'd be stronger and more unified in greater and greater ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. As Tony leads us, every head bowed, every eye closed. If there's something somebody's got going on, just respond now to the Lord. And we'll stay in an attitude of prayer until I feel like the presence of the Lord is releasing us to move.